Well, hey, this is your old friend Bill. Whenever I find myself in Davis, I'm busy putting the fun in fundraising. But when I'm not, I always listen to KDVS 90.3 FM. And you should, too. Go Aggies! This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We're looking forward to trying something different in our second segment today when we're going to be joined by Catherine Ahn. I met Catherine over at Capital Public Radio. She's worked for the California Aggie. And um, will be joining us in the second segment to take our equipment and go down the hall over to the California Aggie office here in Lower Freeborn, where we'll talk with Daniel Stone, editor-in-chief of the Aggie. We look forward to doing that in our second segment. In our third segment, we'll be joined by phone from Los Angeles by investigative journalist Lisa Pease. Lisa's been on the show uh, many times before. She's going to update us on what's going on with the issues of California's voting machines. Uh, that, uh, that, that will be interesting, I promise you. So, um, you know, stay tuned for our upcoming segments. But right now, while I'm thinking about it, I would like to acknowledge also uh, Heather Klinger, a DJ here who was playing uh, some old shows of ours on Tuesday uh, after Jeff Kravitz's program. I enjoyed listening to Panic Attack. Jeff was doing some political satire with a phony Bush interview, something we've been known to uh, perpetrate in the past. Heather played an old show of ours, interview with A.G. Block of the California Journal and, and uh, Martin Anaya, which was followed by... Um, a little bit later in the evening, another segment of ours we did with um, Shane Carpenter of uh, of, the Sac- of Access Sacramento, uh, an expert on radio. We did a, a segment on the history of radio, and I kind of enjoyed listening to the stuff that we did a couple of years back. Uh, I, I think we've gotten uh, gotten better. Certainly was a surprise for me. Hopefully it was a, a pleasant surprise for all of you. So uh, we, we want to thank Heather again for thinking of us when there is some, uh, some, some, some air time to fill and sticking in one of our old CDs. In this date in history, June 16, 1958, Imre Negi, the former prime minister of Hungary, was hanged after a secret trial. Negi had come to power following an uprising in 1956 that was crushed by Soviet military force, one of the many, many black marks in the history of communism, which was largely a history of black marks. Uh, One communist mark not so black came in uh, June 16, 1963, when Vostok 6 launched Soviet cosmonaut Valentina Tereshkova into space, thus becoming the first woman to orbit the Earth. In the, uh, in the course of the late 50s and early 60s, the Soviet Union was beating the tar out of the United States in the space race, and one of their firsts among many was launching the first woman to travel into space. Our witticism of the day comes from comedian Gary Shandling, who said... The only reason I'm not running for president is that I'm afraid no woman will come forward and say she slept with me. A 
from the feedback section of uh, New Scientist magazine a couple issues back. They noted that uh, several readers had written them to tell them that uh, the joke they used, I used to think I was indecisive, but now I'm not so sure, <laughs> was very old, and threw in a bunch of other jokes, uh, two of which they said they liked, and, and we like this one. Um, it's probably an apocryphal story, but it's claimed that Niels Bohr, the legendary physicist, reputedly kept a lucky horseshoe when challenged by his fellow scientists and mathematicians that surely he didn't believe in such superstitious nonsense. He allegedly replied, of course not, but I understand it works even if you don't believe in it. It was noted in the same magazine and in the course of writing an essay on the late Roman Republic, Chris Carter started to describe a meeting of the Roman Senate that took place on 3rd of December, 63 B.C. As soon as he typed this in, the Word program produced a pop-up ad asking if he would like to schedule a meeting for that date. Eager though he was for the opportunity to chat with Julius Caesar and contemporaries, Carter felt obliged for practical reasons to decline. And uh, as we seem to do every week, we must go to the Week magazine because we love their Good Week 4, Bad Week 4 selections. It was not a good week for anything we liked in the last issue, but we did like all three of the Bad Week 4 selections. Starting with spelling. It was a bad week for spelling after it was noted that there were two major typos in a Greenville, North Carolina war memorial. Sixteen years after it was erected, it was noted that the Marines' Latin motto, Semper Fidelis, was spelt Semper Fighter. And the Coast Guard's motto, Semper Paratus, was rendered Semper Haratus. That's amazing, said city official Boyd Lee, especially since veterans are sticklers for accuracy. We get a call if the flag isn't flown correctly. It was evidently a bad week for the darkest hours. After a 24-hour suicide hotline in Canada announced that henceforth it will be open only between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. in order to save money. Man, is that a Rodney Dangerfield or what? Oh, I called up the suicide hotline. They put me on hold. Yes, best not to be despondent between 5 p.m. and 9 a.m. in Canada. And far and away, my personal favorite, it was judged a bad week for enlightenment after a long-standing rivalry between two neighboring Buddhist temples in Thailand finally boiled over into a street brawl. When an ordinary person is given a middle finger sign, he will be mad, said monk Bonlert Boonpan. So am I. You just have to love the concept of a street brawl between two Buddhist temples in Thailand. From the Only in America file, an Ohio man has been arrested for wearing a Grinch mask in the street. Norma Eugene Gray, 42, says he was dressed as the mean-spirited Dr. Seuss character to protest his employer's pension policy. But state laws restrict the wearing of masks to children, actors in plays, and workers who need facial protection. Officials defended the arrest, saying the criminals or terrorists could use masks to conceal their faces. Well, I gather then that if Michael Jackson had been tried in Ohio... He could have convicted him for wearing that surgical mask. 
And in the Soviet Union, Mikhail Kordovsky, once Russia's richest man and his business partner, were sentenced uh, to nine years in a labor camp for tax evasion. In a case reminiscent of Soviet-era show trials, the defendants were kept in a cage throughout their court appearance, and the judge's verdict was a nearly verbatim recap of the prosecution's case. Apparently, Kordovsky's real crime uh, was... uh, to announce that he would form a political party to oppose Vladimir Putin, the Russian president. President George Bush said that the U.S. would watch the appeal process closely as a barometer of the rule of law in Russia. We'll be, uh, we'll be talking more politics here shortly, as we, as we like to do, but um, I'm going to pause at this moment and, and put a plug in for something. I had a chance to see a, a film playing in Sacramento last week, The Wild parrots of Telegraph Hill, and uh, I, I found this to be quite a charming movie. It's been getting uh, four stars review. Uh, that's the, the B gave it four stars, and and I would agree. It's a uh, it's a very uh, very engaging movie about a rather uh, I don't know. I guess you have to say a bit of a goofball character, Mark Bittner, sort of a semi homeless person who befriends a uh, well a rather astonishing uh, a flock of wild parrots, which to everyone's surprise has uh, is taken up residence and is thriving near the Coit Tower area in downtown San Francisco. Who would expect a South American parrots to be living in San Francisco? But uh, but they do. So if you've got uh, nothing planned uh, for your afternoons in the next few weeks, you might want to you know pencil in some time to go to go see that. I believe it's only playing once a day. It's currently available over at. The Crest Theater, but uh, but I think it's one of the more uh, more entertaining things I've seen lately. Now we were privileged to speak uh, in February with uh, a legend of, of broadcast journalism, Walter Cronkite, and uh, in the mail last week came a letter from Walter Cronkite, an open letter soliciting assistance. Um, in some groups that are standing up to the religious right, and I'd like to just quote a little bit from um, from this from this letter. Dear friend. When I anchored the evening news, I kept my opinions to myself. But now, more than ever, I feel I must speak out. That's because I'm deeply disturbed by the dangerous and growing influence of people like Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell on our nation's political leaders. Especially after Robertson and Falwell both shamefully blamed America's courts and the highest levels of our government for the horrific September 11th attacks on our nation. They said it happened because we quote, insulted God, unquote. Falwell went on to blame feminists, pro-choice Americans, and other groups he despises. Like you, I understand that freedom of speech is a founding principle of our nation, and I respect people with the courage to speak their minds. As a concerned person of faith, however, I've watched with increasing alarm as the Christian coalition and other religious right groups manipulate religion to further their intolerant, political agendas. The Christian Coalition has more than 2 million members and a growing coffer of funds helping it influence elections and political candidates. In response, many members of Congress are forced to cave in to its demands. Even politicians who privately dislike its tactics or are uncomfortable with its political agenda have been scared into submission. So I ask you to stand with the Interfaith Alliance to challenge the intolerant influence of the religious right in civic life. And 
I don't know any more than that about the Interfaith Alliance, but I certainly respect Walter Cronkite and his views and suggest that, uh, you know, might be time to, to see what, uh, what, uh, what this group is about. We will probably try and uh, contact some of their people and, and, and speak with them about, uh, about uh, um, what they're up to. We were counting on some input uh, from our friend Hannah Shakespeare, film documentarian, because uh, Hannah, when uh, doing a documentary in Colorado, had crossed paths with Pastor Ted Haggard, uh, the founder of the New Life uh, Church there in Colorado Springs. But when I called Hannah, she just was depressed about this very topic and said for the next month she wasn't going to be able to address it. Harper's Magazine had a special report um, in its um, May 2005 issue about uh, this church and and other things related to um, to the religious right in America. Pastor Ted is a scary guy, and I want to Hannah to come on probably in a month to tell you just how scary he is. Like a lot of folks, he thinks that Armageddon's right around the corner, and that's a good thing because he's on the right side. Uh, what's, uh, what separates Ted from a lot of the other people like uh, James Dobson, Jerry Falwell, and Pat Robertson is that unlike those other fellows, Pastor Ted talks to President George W. Bush or his advisors every Monday. Harper's noted that while the press tends to regard James Dobson as the most powerful evangelical Christian in America, Pastor Ted is at least his equal. When George Bush signed the uh, so-called Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act, something thankfully uh, struck down by the courts, it was Pastor Ted who was on, on a plane the next morning to be there for the signing. Uh, James Dobson was not there. So when we talk about the Interfaith Alliance, we're also going to try and talk a little bit about Pastor Ted Haggard in the weeks to come. Another topic I think we need to stay on, like White on Rice, I think why a lot of you folks like to listen to stations like uh, like KDVS, because, um, well, unlike a lot of the mainstream media, we find such stories interesting and uh, devote a lot of time to them. Uh, like the following, comes from page A20 of the Sacramento Bee. I mean, you, this stuff is out there, but, you know, a lot of this shouldn't be on page A20, it should be on the front page. Last week, George Bush and, uh, and Alberto Gonzalez, the new attorney general, were in Ohio telling people that uh, we need to renew the U.S. Patriot Act, noting that uh, thanks to having this around, that charges have been brought against 400 suspects and more than half of those charged have been convicted. However, an analysis by the Washington Post of the Justice Department's list of terrorism prosecutions shows that 39 people not 200, have been convicted of crimes related to terrorism or national security. Most of the others were convicted of relatively minor crimes, such as making false statements and violating immigration law, and had nothing to do with terrorism. Overall, the median sentence was just over 11 months. In this Post study, of all the people charged as a result of terrorism investigations, the Post found no demonstrable connection to terrorism or terrorist groups for 180 of them. Just 14 people have been convicted of terrorism-related crimes, connections to the Al-Qaeda terrorist network, including such people as Zacharias Musawi. Bruce Hoffman, a terrorist expert who heads the Washington office of the Rand Corporation, said, for so many of these cases, there seems to be much less substance to them than we 
first assume or have been told. This might be a good time to note that the $300 billion we're spending in Iraq, a country which did not attack us on September 11th, perhaps might have been better spent shoring up the defenses of this nation for, from future terrorist attacks from al-Qaeda and others. But if you spend $250,000 a year for a, a military contractor, i.e. mercenary in, in Iraq, that's money that you're not spending inspecting uh, shipping containers coming into our ports. We, uh, we hope this story will get more attention, this matter of, uh, of the fact that uh, you know, we're not putting away people connected to al-Qaeda. Uh, on the other hand, it appears that uh, this story of the Downing Street memo is, is gaining some legs here in America. It's been noted there's been a growing storm of protest in the U.S. created by last month's publication of the minutes of this memo in the Sunday Times of London. A host of citizens, including many internet bloggers, have demanded to know why the Downing Street memo, often shortened to DSM now on websites, has been largely ignored by the U.S. mainstream media. To refresh your memory, if you're not following the story, it's been published in, in the London papers that uh, the British government uh, was openly talking about how uh, the U.S. was going to war in Iraq. This has been decided by April of 2002, but that they had to basically set up the politics to justify it. The document said the only way the Allies could justify military action was to place Saddam Hussein in a position where he ignored or rejected a United Nations ultimatum, ordering him to cooperate with weapons inspectors, but it warned this would be difficult. The document said, quote, It's just possible that an ultimatum could be cast in terms which Saddam would reject, unquote but noting that if he accepted it and did not attack the Allies, they would be quote, most unlikely, unquote, to obtain the needed legal justification. The British government openly noted that the U.S. has a different interpretation of international law than does the government of the U.K. or the international community. We've been talking about this on this show all throughout 2002. We'd like to remind you that uh, the U.S. was going to go to war in Iraq, despite the fact that Iraq did not attack us on September 11th, and that it was indeed looking for justification. This is something we followed in real time as it, in, as it unfolded. So we're not the least bit surprised by this memo, and we're glad that people across the country are finally taking note. It's been noted that uh, complaints of media self-censorship for the bloggers, etc., have now been backed up by the ombudsman of the Washington Post, the New York Times, and National Public Radio, who have questioned the lack of attention the minutes of that meeting have received from their organizations. And we should note this is this is a memo that doesn't come from like the Al Jazeera, you know, television Arabic television network. This is from our staunchest ally in the war on Iraq, the government of the UK. Walter Pincus in the Washington Post noted that the intelligence and facts were being fixed around the policy, said the memo. And uh, Democrats in, in Congress, led by John Conyers of Michigan, have scheduled an unofficial hearing, which apparently took place earlier today, which included Joe Wilson. Ambassador Joseph Wilson has spoken to us in this program twice. And uh, rest assured, we'll... we'll We'll follow this, uh, this story with you. 
You know, and actually our friend James Israel noted in a, an editorial in the Comic Press News that the Downing Street memo was leaked from within the British Parliament to the Times of London. It's a huge scandal in England and should be here. Haven't heard about it? Just goes to show how complicit the corporate-owned media in this country are. But let's hope that the New York Times, Washington Post, and National Public Radio will pay more attention to the complaints of their ombudsman. Clearly, George W. Bush, as uh, many people have reported, uh, many critics have reported, had planned to go to war very early, probably even before September 11th. And once that happened, they used it to justify uh, an act that is otherwise not justifiable. We wish uh, President Bush would have uh, t taken heed of um, some of the comments when uh, one government official who helped plan the first Gulf War in the early 90s who noted that, quote, had we gone the invasion route, the United States could conceivably still be an occupying power in a bitterly hostile land. It would have been a dramatically different and perhaps barren outcome. Uh, the author of that comment was former President George Herbert Walker Bush. We would note in a related topic that it hasn't gone unnoticed that uh, Star Wars Revenge of the Sith seems to have some parallels to contemporary politics. In one scene, the megalomaniac Chancellor Palpatine uses security fears as an excuse for a Patriot Act-like expansion of his powers. And as the Senate cheers the fateful proclamation in the movie, Natalie Portman's character remarks, So this is how liberty dies, to thunderous applause. In another, the young Darth Vader tells a former ally, If you're not with me, you're my enemy, which seems to be an obvious echo of George Bush's you're with us or you're with the terrorist line after 9-11. Uh, George Lucas has been shrugging this all off and did have a great quote at the, um, at the Cannes Film Festival uh, explaining how uh, the good Jedi Anakin Skywalker turns into the bad Darth Vader. Said Lucas, most bad people think they're good people. All right, let us now take a break from matters of gravity and uh, and return with a little bit of a fun episode here down in Lower Freeborn Hall and pay a visit uh, to our friends over at the California Aggie. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and this is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. <laughs> 